Hey guys, thanks for checking out the podcast today. Today we have a special treat. We've got Derek Melton's full demonstration from our Andy Davis Hammer in 2023. So this is going to be him talking about his process, how and why he does what he does, how he shapes things, how he thinks about things, how he figures out his process before he even gets started. So listen to this whole thing. It is totally worth it. And I hope you enjoy it. Can you hear me? Wonderful. That's so That's nice. All right, guys, we're going to start our day two today. It's going to be all day demos. The biggest thing I want you guys to be careful of is don't push your chairs off the back of the top row, please. That would be nice for you and me. Uh, we're going to get started this morning with Derek Melton. He's going to be doing some really awesome stuff. Yeah, give it up for Derek. Following after Derek, we're going to have the Windburns up doing some Mosaic Damascus. We've got following the Windburns. Who is that? Is Andrew Larson going to be doing some hand tool forging? And we're going to end our day with a little Stelter doing a full size chopper. So we'll have our food truck here again today from 11 to 2. They'll be coming. So we'll just come in and out. We're going to keep the demos rolling all day so we can get everybody in. Uh, so hopefully it's going to be a great time. If you have any questions, need anything at all, you can grab me, Evan, Francis, holler at us. We've got snacks in the other room. And uh, from there, we're just going to let Derek take it away. Thank you for coming. Thank you to the people at Coal Iron. I uh, continue to be impressed with their uh, innovation, with the things that they're bringing to market, their willingness to support this community. Um, and, uh, and just uh, just how cool they are. I mean, this is like Disneyland for blacksmiths in this shop. And uh, being around this many cool people and this many cool tools is, is pretty amazing. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I never got to meet Andy in person, but um, I started a podcast right after he started doing his riding down the road in the truck kind of podcast and I did the same thing. I was like, hey, you know, that's a that's a really easy way to get audio out. Just record on your phone and don't worry about all this high fancy editing stuff. Just talk about what you're doing. And so that's kind of become my philosophy for my podcast, but it's also become just kind of my philosophy behind my social media accounts. Um, I don't really do a whole lot other than just turn the phone on and start recording and sharing what I'm doing when I'm in the shop. And that's really what I'm gonna to do today, is I'm just gonna go through making some of the things that I make and sell on my website and just explain why I sell those things, uh, how I make those things, and, and really most importantly today, why I make those things with induction forging. So, um, but yeah, back to Andy, I didn't get to meet him, but he was very influential uh, for me in, in kind of how I do some of my social media stuff. So. Um, it's good to remember him today and give him a, a shout out. So uh, anyway, thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's get started. So I'm a weird blacksmith, all right? And I've had this discussion with some guys that are pretty traditional. I cheat like crazy. And so if I can find a way to cheat to make my products faster, less expensive on me, more profitable for me, I am all about it. And if that means using some technology or tool that some might consider cheating or non-traditional methods, 
I am 100% about it. And, and when I think about it, I think that's really the spirit of blacksmithing for a long time. Blacksmiths, you know, when, when the Model T came out and carriage repair industry and horse repair stuff was kind of going down, what did they do? They pivoted, they made power tools and better welders to make their stuff faster so they could work on cars, right? So blacksmiths have long been the guys who developed, uh, you know, foot-powered treadle hammers, you know, Da Vinci hammers. You know, that, that hammer, that Da Vinci hammer, is a perfect example of a blacksmith saying, I am willing to cheat, right? So <clears throat> what I'm gonna talk about first is the tools I use to cheat and kind of why. So uh, right off the bat, the number one tool that's helped me out in the last few years cheating in the blacksmith shop has been 3D printing. So I use a 3D printer to prototype. I use a 3D printer to make little anvils that I've given out here. Um, sometimes I use the 3D design software just to kind of start getting in my head what I think I want the end product to be or to shortcut a process. And so um, the one of the first things that I made was, was a bottle opener blank. And um, this was the 3D printed version. And this is the laser cut version, all right? And so if you've ever made a bottle opener, you know, you can, you can start with this and you can grab a slot punch and you can punch your hole, drift it open, three different size drifts, then you go to the horn and you got these little mouse ears you got to knock down, you know, to make it nice and round. And you spend all that time to get to here where you can kind of then, in my opinion, start making your bottle opener. All right. Well, I, I, had a, I had a project where I needed to make a bunch of bottle openers, like a bunch. And so I decided to cheat. So I went to the 3D design program and I designed this very, very simple very simple piece of flat bar with a hole in it. I'm gonna pass that around. And uh, took that back to the shop and hooked it over the horn of my anvil. I was like, is that gonna work? And it was a little too small. So I went back inside, redesigned it, printed another one, came back out to the shop and I was like, all right, that's perfect. That's gonna work. So then I sent that to uh, Send Cut Send. Shout out to Send Cut Send. Who uses Send Cut Send in here? Woo! Yes, they are awesome. So I, I sent that blank to Send Cut Send and I said, send me, you know, 250 of those. And I think at that quantity, it was like a dollar a piece or something. So for a dollar, I was able to get that bottle opener blank sent to me, ready to go to the horn. So I shortcut probably 30 minutes or 15 minutes of now, I'm not a traditional super great blacksmith, so Andrew could probably slot punch that hole and have it look perfect in about the same time that it takes me to go grab the bottle opener blank. But for me, it, it was a big shortcut of time. And so it was a huge time saver having that thing 3D printed. And so now I call that the three minute bottle opener, that blank, because that's, I've timed myself I can make a bottle opener by grabbing that blank and then three minutes later, it's ready to finish, like spray paint or hot oil or whatever. And so, in my opinion, 
That's 3D printing being used. That's subbing out uh, laser cutting. Uh, I would love to have a big CNC laser cut machine in my shop, but I don't know where I'd, I'd have to hang it from the rafters. I don't have any room anymore. So I, I sub that part out. And so for me, um, I don't have a milling machine in the shop. Not that they're not great. I would love to have one. Not, I don't have a lathe in, in the shop. I send those jobs out to guys that do have those machines. And so um, for me, that saves me time. It saves me energy. And I think in the long run, I think in the long run, it's saving me money. So the bottle opener blank, that's like the first, that's the first example. Um, Last year at Blade Show, I was going, I was taking a bunch of hammers to sell, but I wanted to have something that was kind of blade themed. So I did the same thing. I started, I, I got some of these bottle opener blanks in the shape of a Japanese kunai, which is like a little ring knife kind of thing. And so I took these and then did a little forging on it you know, forged the bevels in and pushed in my tab and called it the kunai bottle opener. And I took a load of those to Blade Show and sold every one of them real quickly. And so that was, in my mind, another opportunity or another time when cheating worked really well for me. So, um, and when I say cheating, you know, I'm talking about shortcutting the process. Um, it's not like there's some big controversy out there. Somebody's, you know, all up in my DMs telling me that I'm a horrible blacksmith for cheating. But that topic kind of comes up on social media from time to time. You know, people will see somebody doing something like that and then they go, oh, that's cheating and that's not traditional. And I'm like, you're right, 100%, that's cheating. So, um, and so the bottle openers were one thing and then the swage blocks that, that I've got now, those also started out on the 3D printer. And so they started out uh, in my head as a, uh, so I was making coffee scoops and I was using a 90 pound swage block from Laurel Machine and Foundry. And I was picking that 90, oh thanks. I was picking that 90 pound block up and uh, I was moving it over to my fly press, you know, and I was swaging out copper stuff every once in a while. And then I was moving it back and changing tooling out on that fly press. And I was like, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I had a dedicated little block. And so I watched Alex Pohl Ironwork, I watched their channel, and when they make their coffee scoops, they made a little bitty tiny swage. You know, it's just one swage for that one process. And so I went to a local machinist in town and I said, hey, I need a swage block that looks like this. You know, that's got, they got this half sphere for my coffee scoops, I wanna do that. And he was like, great, that'll be $350. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And so, I started looking around at what it would cost to get some of these made. Um, and for machine work, this was not feasible. And so I went the route of having these cast. And so these are cast in a foundry, but these started uh, in Tinkercad, which is a super, super simple. If you have a 3D printer and you wanna start doing this kind of stuff for blacksmithing, the best place in my opinion to start is Tinkercad. You're gonna feel like it was made for a kid because that's what it looks like, and it was. It was made to introduce children to 3D design, but it's a pretty powerful program um, in that it is an additive and subtractive 3D design method. So to make this block in 3D design, I created a square, I extruded it up, 
you know, dragged it with my mouse, got it to the dimensions I want. You can set it to inches or millimeters or whatever. And then I started taking shapes, like I took a rectangular and I said, I want that to be a rectangular hole. And I slide it through the box and hit subtract and there's the hole, you know. And so I just kept doing that and kept printing prototypes and going out to the shop and putting them in my vise, putting it under the tire hammer and until I got the prototype where I was happy with it. And I was like, hey, I think that's a useful tool. I know I want to use it. And so I sent it off and had it made. And so now it's become a, now it's become a real thing. I think that's really cool that this real tool that people are using now started off in a child's CAD program on my computer. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's 3D printing. I wanted to talk about that for just a minute and how important 3D printing for me uh, is in my shop helping me to speed things up. Um, I think first, what I'm gonna make is just the uh, traditional Friedrich's cross. Uh, for those of you that were here yesterday, you saw that we made a ridiculous, monstrously huge cross. <laughs> Shout out to Corbin for that. And um, I'm, we're gonna make three different sizes of those real quick, and I'm gonna do it with induction and show you how fast it happens with induction. And so that's gonna, um, that's gonna shift me over to talking about this machine here. And um, I'm gonna talk for just a little bit. So, um, and this, this can be interactive. I would love, if you have questions, yes. Yeah, um, so one thing I just said that I didn't realize is that you designed those swage blocks to be used in conjunction with the tire hammer as well? Yes. Like how is it intended to be used with the tire hammer? So on a Clay Spencer tire hammer, the bottom die on a tire hammer is a bolt down kind of die. It's a flat four inch by four inch plate with a die, a rectangular die block. I have a Raymond head. Yeah, same, same exact die. Yeah. So that die, the height of that die is the exact same height. I measured the die from the base of the, base of the anvil post to the top of the die, and that's why this is this thick. Okay. So you can take the die out of a tire hammer and slide this in place without having to mess with your spring tension and your throw on the tire hammer. And so the idea behind that is you can slide this under your tire hammer and upset tools in the hardy hole or whatever, you know. Now obviously if you put it on end, you're not gonna have as much working space, but my idea was I may want to use this, and I do use this for making ball peens. So if, I have a, if I'm working a ball peen billet, I'll flip over to this side with these real deep swages and I, swage the face of the ball peen in this super deep form. And so that's one reason that works. But yeah, it's, I designed those blocks to work. Tire hammer, hydraulic press, fly press, at the anvil, you know, hopefully. I'm sorry? These are 6150. So they're uh, spring steel, I think. 5160 is spring steel, I think 6150 is too. It's just, I think it's 6150 is a different amount of chromium in it, I think. Check that. But um, yeah, so <clears throat> induction. So the first time I saw an induction forge was at Clay Spencer's shop. So I went and built a Clay Spencer tire hammer in a class and realized that I didn't know what I was doing with a power hammer, and so Clay was offering a power hammer tools class. 
And so me and two other guys went and took a, a weekend class with Clay and we made a bucket full of power hammer tools using the tire hammers and that was amazing. But in that class, we made these. We made spring tools for tire hammers or for any power hammer, right? And so Clay, I'd never seen an induction machine before, never heard of one, but Clay hands each of us a flat bar and says, here, take that to that machine over there and stomp the pedal and put it in the middle and stomp the pedal. I had no idea what he was talking about, but he sent me to the induction machine, told me to stomp the pedal and stick the metal in the, in the coil. And so I walked over there and stomped the pedal and stuck that thing in there. And my world has not been the same since. So, I saw how fast this happened and how quickly it heated this. And he was like, okay, take it out and bend it. Bend it by hand and make your spring. And so we bent it in half, you know, around a little, we had a little round bar that we bent it around so that I didn't do that. But we bent it around and we made our, we made this bar, you know. He had a, he had a piece of pipe and a vise and we went over the piece of pipe and bent it around the pipe. And he was like, okay, now we're gonna go weld the bits on the end. But I was, that was it for me. I was sold. Because I live in Mississippi and it's hot. And we were doing, we were, we were making, uh, we made a dozen different spring tools and I didn't sweat a bit. And that was, I was like, all right, I'm done. I, I can work without sweating, this is amazing. And so I went, back to the house after that class and, and said, I've got to have one. So I went and got one. And like I said, it, it literally turned my world upside down. Um, up to that point, I was making, I was making quite a few hammers. Uh, I was making tools for other blacksmiths. I was making some axes every once in a while, you know, stuff that really required propane. And so when I got this machine, I was also making these little crosses. So um, there's a, a men's ministry that I was partnered with called Iron Man Outdoors. And they, they take guys and take them on weekend hunting trips and then do uh, Bible studies and stuff. And at the end of that weekend, they, they give each one of the guys a cross that has their logo stamped in each one of the arms of the cross. And so I was making hundreds of these crosses for these guys and I was doing it all in propane and, uh, and so when I got back and got the induction forge set up, I thought, man, what if I make these in induction, you know, how will that work? And so I started, I started making these crosses in, uh, in induction and I've never looked back. And there's a, there's a few differences. If you're gonna do batch work like that, there's a few differences. Um, sometimes you might wanna do uh, part of the process in propane just to, um, you know, because you can stack a load of material in a propane forge and, and just keep going through process one or step one. Um, the good thing about that is you can get a lot done really quickly. The bad thing about it is it will work you to death. You know, a gas forge will just absolutely eat your lunch if you let it. But, um, and so I also figured out that my schedule being that I was not a full-time blacksmith, uh, really allowed me sections of time during the day when I could get out in the shop and work. 
And so I rarely at that time had a two hour, three hour, four hour chunk of time when I could get out and dedicated, dedicate to cranking up a forge, getting all my tooling set up, you know, cause that takes a little while to get, get everything all set up and then start working. So then I shifted from that batch mode to one at a time mode. And by doing that, uh, a light bulb went off and I was like, you know, you should just scrap everything you're selling on your website and make it so that you're making things one at a time with induction. And so that's what I did. Uh, I went through my website and I basically deleted everything that was a propane required project. And, uh, and so I started thinking, well, what, what products can I make that I can make when I have 30 minutes? You know, if I've got 30 minutes that I can run out to the shop during lunch. I work from home for a, for a, a hospital system. And, and so, you know, I, I get a lunch and I can run out to the shop and during lunch and 30 minutes with this, I can knock some stuff out. And so I wiped out everything in my web store and started with a set of real small products and, and said, all right, I'm going to just start seeing how this works. <clears throat> and that required another thing which was saying no. And so I, I started to have to say no to people who wanted me to make a Viking axe or, you know, a, a big knife or, or something. You know, I was getting, I had a custom list of things that I was working and then I had my products on the website that all required propane that I was working. And in order to move to this induction kind of only methodology, I had to start telling people no. And so I started turning down all custom work and just focusing on my small product line. And so I do need to set up a hot cut. So so I went through the website and just kind of ruthlessly whacked everything that was in the web store that was going to take me more than an hour to make. That was kind of one of the rules, rules of thumb. And so um, I said, if it's gonna take me an hour to make, then it's not gonna be on the website. And this was kind of a trial run. And so I started doing that and I started with these crosses. I finished the batch for Iron Man and then I listed these as individual products. So I have three different sizes of the cross on the website. I've got, I don't know how many seconds that was, but that was very fast. You probably saw that. But I'll make this size cross. I'll make a 3 8. This is half inch square. I'll make one out of 3 8. And then I'll make one out of quarter inch in either uh, steel or copper. And those, the quarter inch crosses, I call necklace crosses. And, uh, and so I started making those crosses and selling them as three individual products and noticed that I was, I was getting sales. You know, I would post them on social media or talk about them a little bit and I would sell one here or there. And in a fairly short period of time, the orders started coming in and they were all relatively inexpensive items. I don't think I had anything listed on the website at that time 
that was more than $55. Everything was 55 or below. And uh, that, was, that was sometime near the end of the summer when I started that methodology. And when Christmas rolled around, I got, I got slammed with orders. And they were all little stuff that I could make fairly quickly in induction. And, uh, and I've never looked back. And so what I've done over the last few years, two years, three years, I think, since I've had, I think I've had induction for three years. What I've done is I've, I've iterated products. So like these crosses, they, they started as just, just a plain cross, right? Then I added a stamp with like Proverbs 27, 17, the iron sharpens iron stamp. I put that on there and then I'd list that as a second product. You know, Proverbs 27, 17 cross, striped textured cross, round hammered textured cross. And so the one cross quickly became seven different products simply because I was either doing a different texture or I was doing a different stamp. And so some people, you know, would order you know, they'd order a big item, a big item, I'd say a $50 steak turner or something, and then they'd throw one of these in, you know, a small item. And so then that started the bells, or the, started the wheels turning, you know, well, what else can I do that way? And so with the crosses, <clears throat> I started ordering stamps so I could stamp in different stuff because I don't know if you've ever tried to stamp letters in, individual letters, but I can do three straight. Beyond three, and I'm done. It looks like you know a first grader was cut loose in there, and it's like it's all over the place. And so I decided if I wanted some phrase or some word that's longer than three characters, I spend the 120 bucks and have a stamp made. And then it's perfect every time, and that becomes another product. So that makes sense? So I use, um, and people always ask me who I use for stamping. I use uh, Honick engraving, Maria Honick. Um, also, I think they go by Jera Metal Arts sometimes. So I was talking and I let all this heat run out of this cross, which is a good way to show you what I'm doing now is, can you see when I do that? So I'm sticking the, each leg of the cross in, and this cross has gone crazy on me. It's all twisted, and, but I'm just sticking each leg in just for a couple seconds, just so I can get a little heat in there, and I'm using needle nose pliers just to pull that apart just a little bit. Um, when I make these, sometimes they, open up really nice and straight. Like when I get into batch mode and I start opening a bunch of them up, after I open like 10 of them, then I kind of get in the rhythm and they open up real straight after that. But it, you know, usually, especially when I'm doing a demo, this happens a lot. But um, so when you're making these crosses, 
there's a couple of really important things that I like to point out. The dimensions that these need to be cut to, and I have a piece of wood, it's at the bandsaw. Be right back. Whoa! So I need to duck down. <laughs> you cut your blanks? Uh, so, all right, that's a really good question. So, uh, does everybody know how to make a Friedrich's cross in here? No, all right, good. Because usually that's, most everybody's kind of seen it done. So there's, there's three cuts that, well, three or four cuts that have to happen. You cut your bar stock to length, and then you make two intersecting cuts that go down. One cut goes down one side, you flip it, and another cut comes down the other side. And where, the, where those cuts intersect is where this hole ends up being. Evan, I did it again. I just put my back in front of that. But where the, um, where the cuts intersect becomes the opening, which is the primary feature of this cross. The opening is what makes this cross the Friedrich's cross. Um, And this is mild, so you can move this unlike a 40-pound stainless cross. You can move mild pretty easy. But um, the central feature of the Friedrich's cross is the opening in the middle with these folded edges. I'm, I'm not picking that thing up. Um, you can look at it. There's the cross over there. But you see the, you see the edges inside are all turned and they're kind of on the diamond right in the middle. And you noticed I grabbed a piece of hickory. This was a hatchet template that I cut backwards. You notice on hatchets, this is supposed to be back here. And so I cut that backwards and this is now my cross whacker. Um, but anyway, the central feature is that center hole, all right? And there's, in my opinion, there's a right way to cut these and there's a not right way to cut these, all right? And the not right way to cut these is too small. Don't cut your hole too small. If you cut the hole too small, it looks weird. And that's fact, that's not my opinion. It looks weird, all right? because the cross is based on the golden mean. You wanna explain the golden mean to everybody? Not really. Yeah, <laughs> it's a ratio. The golden ratio is found in all creation. It's found in seashells and tree leaves and it's, it's all over the place, but it's a, it's a ratio of measurements, okay? And the cross has that ratio. And when that ratio is off, the cross looks weird, okay? What? One to 1.618, all right? That's the ratio. And so the ratio, where to cut this top leg has to do with the ratio. And if you cut that top leg too small, all right, that cross looks weird. And the reason it looks weird is that your eyes tell you it looks weird because we were all created with the golden mean up here. 
You can believe that or not, but it's true. So anyway, your eyes will tell you whether it looks right or not based on the golden mean, okay? And if you cut that hole too small, the center hole will not match the golden mean of the arms, okay? And the center hole will look real tiny and pinched. And somebody will look at that cross that you made and they'll kind of give you that pat on the head and say, oh, that looks nice. When in reality, their eye is going, that looks weird, all right? So open that thing up. And the way to open that cross up is to document your measurements and cut it the same way every time. And so this is my cutting board. I keep this at my bandsaw, and this helps me make my products look the same every time, and it helps them not look weird. And so on this side of the, of the board, you can see I've got, uh, I don't know, that's five and a half piece of half inch. This is where I line up uh, the half inch square, and I make a mark on right here, and then I'll flip the bar, I'll flip the half inch square, and then I'll make that top mark. And so then I'll cut. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hand this one around so you can see it. This is what a Friedrich's cross looks like before it's opened up. And so this is the 3 8 version. This is what I call a keychain cross, okay? Uh, this is probably I make these more than any other thing in my shop besides stake turners. I make a lot of stake turners, but these and stake turners probably have, are putting my kids through college. So um, you can see if I lay this on the side of this board, I think it where you can see that. So let me grab one of those Sharpies. All right, so this line right here, you see that's where my cross cut stops on that line. And then if I flip this over, this line up here is where the long cut stops. Does everybody see that? Does that make sense? So the first cut is to length right here, chop. All right, the second cut is for the side arms of the cross, the short arms that spread out to the side, that's that. And then you flip it, and then you make a long cut that goes all the way through. And you'll see, you'll see there's a space where these cuts intersect, all right? And if you look, that, that intersection of the cut is the width of this parent material. All right, that's, this is 3 eighths, so I want that intersection to be at least 3 eighths. 3 eighths is where it's not gonna look weird to your eyes. Slightly over the width of the parent material, and in my opinion, it starts to look good, okay? So it's like 3 eighths plus a little bit, and it starts to look nice. This is half inch material, so this is half inch the width of the material. The cross cuts is half inch plus a little bit. And so what I, what I do at the bandsaw is I just, I cut to the line and push just a little past it. Now you could say, Derek, why don't you just make your lines that way? I don't know, that's just always the way I've done it. 
I've just gone, okay, I know it needs to be the width of the bar plus a little, so I just do the plus a little at the bandsaw. I'm, I'm weird like that, but um, so that, that right there, that cut and that methodology to the cut is the secret behind the Friedrich cross. The rest of it is just using a hot cut to split it open. I mean, you saw me do one there. I'll do, a, <clears throat> I'll do one of the keychain crosses real quick too. Um, while I'm doing that, that gives me a, a second to talk about the importance of the coils in an induction machine. So right now this is, I think this is like an inch and a quarter ID, maybe one inch ID in, inside diameter coil that's in the machine. It, it looks kind of, what's in the machine right now looks like that, all right? So what I've been told and what I have discovered with induction is that the optimal size coil should be about an eighth of an inch-ish larger than the material you're heating. To get the optim, optimum super fast speed, that's what you want, okay? So for this, this one inch coil, this right here would be great for a railroad spike that I've laid somewhere, yeah. So this coil right here, this coil right here, you can see there's like a quarter inch or so between the railroad spike and the coil. Uh, this coil could be a little tighter, but um, I'll talk about the reason why I like using oversized coils in a minute. But let's say you're working three eighths all the time. That's all you're doing. Or you're working half all the time. You're making, where's Rob? Let's say you're making TV trays, Brian Brazil style TV trays, which is these uh, tool trays that fold down. They're made of half inch. Yeah, they're, they're made of like half inch square and you're punching a lot of holes. So if you were gonna do that and you wanted that bar to light up really fast, then you would use a real tight coil, okay? And put that in there and it would, it would measurably be different how fast it heats up. And so I may do that in a few minutes. I may swap coils out so you can actually see the difference between how fast it is. Um, but just know that when it comes to induction, just like there's not one hammer for, the, for every job in a blacksmith shop, there's not one pair of tongs for every job in a blacksmith shop, there's not one coil for every job in an, with an induction forge. Now they make a coil, or you can make a coil called a combo coil, where it has two shapes, and I didn't, I didn't bring one with me. Oh, that's my box. But um, a combo coil looks like this. It's, it's a lot more coil or a lot more copper, but it's got a flat bar section. It's got a, a flattened oval, basically, and then it's got a round section in the front. So if you're using round or square bar, you can go in this one to heat it up. If you're heating wide flat bar, you can go in this one to heat it up. And so it kind of lets you not have to change coils so much by using a, a combo coil. The trade-off is the more copper you have in your coil, the less effective the coil heats the material. Have y'all found that to be true? And so it's like 
if you make a coil, and I've seen them, I've seen a triple coil with like three different shapes. If you make a coil with all that copper in there, it kind of kills the speed that it heats. Now it'll still heat it, and it's still pretty effective, but just know the longer the coil gets, the, the more speed you're gonna lose. So, um, this little booger right here, this guy is gonna heat 3 8 material lightning fast, like super fast. So if I was making a big batch of these 3 8 inch keychain crosses, I'd put that one in the induction machine. Um, there are all kinds of different shapes of coils. This is called a pancake coil because it kind of looks like a pancake. This also looks just like what you see in a, you know, in your stove at home. Same principle, same kind of thing. It sits like this, stuff you put over it gets hot. So um, if you're working something that's really kind of odd shaped, you can put this right here and kind of go over it like that and get it hot. Um, there are taco coils. And the reason these are called taco coils is they kind of look like a taco, right? And so these fit in the machine like this, and these allow you to pass material in and out of the coil without having to go through a circular hole. So sometimes you've got something odd shaped like these crosses. I've used a taco coil and these crosses quite a bit doing this kind of stuff right here when I'm doing a big batch. Um, these are pretty handy. Um, I mean, do you see where I'm going? There's like all kinds of different shapes, right? This one was made and, and described to me as a chef knife heat treating coil for taking a long, thin chef knife and going in sideways. And I've put this on one time and put a blade in there and it was almost too fast. Like the, the thin edge of a blade was just like white just real fast and so um, but anyway that's what that is and so you get the idea your imagination is where it stops as to what you can kind of shape the coil to be now you'll notice that most of these coils most of them have three to four turns all right there's a reason for that there's a whole lot of complicated math behind that I can't explain that to you today, <laughs> just can't. So um, all I can tell you is that once you go past three or four, usually it starts to kind of lose effectiveness a little bit. Now I've seen some videos of these guys like in Pakistan that are using these induction machines and they've got a little ramp and they've got ball bearings that are, that are sliding down and clicking into place and sitting in the induction coil for a second and then something clicks and it goes down and another one drops right behind it, you know, and then they've got these things where they're putting pieces of round bar that are this long and they've got a coil that's that long, you know. I think those induction machines are using some kind of electricity that I don't have access to in my shop. So, but for these machines, the 15 kilowatt that use 220 volt single phase power, three to four coils is where you want to be. You go beyond that, and it's gonna slow down, it's gonna to start to kind of get not super fast. So, I feel like I'm talking way too much. I need to work. Um, does anybody have any questions? Where do you purchase your coils? 
I purchased my coils from a guy in Canada. His name is Terry Cash. And um, I have made my own coils several times. There's not a whole lot to it. If you go buy the um, quarter inch refrigerant tubing tools that uh, HVAC repair guy would use, you can make your own coils uh, really nice and easy. Uh, one thing I'll say about that is if you buy the cheapest tools, you're gonna have really ugly coils. They're not gonna work real great. Um, those coils are, um, they're quarter inch, here in the US, they're quarter inch round copper tubing. And uh, if you try to bend them or shape them with real cheap tools, or you try to flare the ends, because this is a flared end that goes on here, I'm gonna pass, I'm gonna pass a coil around. You can see how the copper is flared on the end. You can kind of see what they're made of. But that flaring tool and the bending tools, you gotta spend a little money to get good tools. Uh, and if you don't, then you're gonna struggle to make good coils. And so I went and bought the cheapest tools I could find. And guess what happened? I made really ugly, not so great coils. And so uh, Terry Cash in Canada started making these jigs that he can wrap a coil up in no time and they're really nicely done and his prices are pretty reasonable. So when I need a new coil, I just call Terry and I say, hey man, I need a coil. And um, he makes them. So um, so this is what I call a wall hanger. This cross, it's like a six inch or five and a half, six inch piece of of steel and I took my hot cut out and I'm not ready. But I make a lot of these around Easter. I make a lot of these around Christmas time. And um, these are the ones that I have different stamps for. I offer different textures for these. Um, I, I've, I've done quite a few of these with like custom names on them. Like I said, once I get past three initials, I generally am turning that job down unless I've got a stamp for it now. Um, you measure that by eye. My eye told me that that was too short. <laughs> <laughs> Check that out. So I cut it too short. But look, look at that and tell me, tell me that's not too short. If you can see where I cut it, that in my opinion should be a quarter inch higher. But because I was talking and demonstrating, I just laid it down without really looking. I cut it too short. So um, we're gonna throw this demo piece to the side. Um, I could, I could forge that out a little bit and flare it. Um, but I need to quit talking so much and start forging a little bit. So I'm gonna move on uh, to the keychain size. Again, these are 3 8 square, and uh, I do stamps on these as well. I do little custom stamps on the little 3 8 and uh, these, are, these are one of the things that I do the most of is the 3 eighths size.
Sometimes if you can't get it started, you have to go to the side a little bit and booger it up like that. So when we were making that big stainless cross yesterday, I kept looking at that, and every time one of the arms would go kind of weird, all I could think was how easy it is to fix that bend in a little cross and how ridiculously hard <laughs> it is to fix it in the big one. Um, because this happens quite a lot when I'm forging these. They kind of, if you're not applying pressure equally in all directions as you're opening them, they will kind of tend to, I can't find my, there we go. They'll kind of tend to go in different directions. Um, but because the induction forge gives me heat so fast and I'll have to throw it back in the propane forge and wait for a minute, you know, when they kind of go weird, I just go, okay, I'll just get a little more heat and uh, open it up that way. It is important when you open these to try to open each leg, like both legs at the same time. You were talking about that yesterday. Yeah, and so if you, if you open, like if you grab this and you opened, you opened one side like that, and then you tried to open the other one, the, the areas where it twists to make that nice uh, feature in the middle, they won't twist right. They, they both have to twist out at the same time. Um, oh, this is, this is a feature that I use with my coal iron induction machine is this plate. Right here, this is just a piece of quarter inch plate. I sit this under the machine and it's kind of my work table. Um, so I brought my work table with me. So you've seen that happen a couple of times, that spark. So what happens when, that hap when, when I do that? So when I'm doing that, what I'm, what's happening is I'm touching the copper here and then I'm completing the circuit. All right, by touching it in two places at once. If you, if you put your work into the coil and make two points of contact, it throws a spark, just like a MIG welder touching off, and it will, it'll do like a MIG welder does to your work. It'll leave a little divot in your work, which is not real fun if you've completely finished your work and you're putting the last heat in and you arc it and put a nice little burn spot in your work. Um, these, that will happen. It will actually eat into your work just like a, a little welder. Um, I have heard that it's not good to do that to these machines. I've heard that it stresses them out, that it's bad for it, and that people have had their machines fail when they arc that or when they arc it like that. I, I've, I've done that more times than I can count in three years. I do it every time I use the machine, pretty much, because um, that coal that I passed around has like a black paint coating on it. I don't know if you saw that. Um, that was something that Terry Cash was uh, experimenting with to see if that coating would prevent the arcing, and it doesn't, um, or it doesn't do it very well. And so the only thing I've seen that really will prevent the arcing like that is, is two things. These coils sometimes come with this little ceramic fiber tubing around them. Um, that prevents it 
uh, for a little while and then eventually you burn that tubing off like you see I've done here and then you're exposed copper you're exposing copper in there and it starts doing it again anyway so um, it, it's it's just one of those things that happens and it absolutely just freaks people out the first time they see it if they come over to your shop and you're showing them hey look how cool induction forging is and that happens they don't like it usually you know it freaks them out and so just know I don't feel any shock when that happens. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. I don't feel it at all. It's not like. I don't think it's dangerous. And again, I've done it so many times. I'm not really convinced that it's bad for the machine. Um, so, it's just one of those things you kind of gotta watch for. Now, when you're opening a Friedrich's cross and you don't do it exactly right every time and it's going to go weird like this what i do is i've got a vice in my shop that's on a rolling stand it's a little small vice and i will open the cross and then stick each arm of the cross into a vice and just pull and twist until i open until it starts to move and i'm doing this all cold because again this is mild and what I do is when I put the cross in the vise, the, the jaws of the vise are a straight edge. And so the arms of the cross are either in line with the edge of the vise or they're not. And so when you put the cross in the vise and your cross is doing that, then you know you gotta bring one arm up and so it's in line. So I just move the arms of the cross until it's in line with the, the edge of the vise. That does require that you've got a half decent vise. If you've got a vise where it's not straight, then that won't help you. So that is a three eighths, what I call the keychain cross. And you see, I can't get this in the coil anymore because the arms are open. And so I just keep moving it around. But one thing that's also neat with these machines is the edge of this coil is a radiant heat source as well. So um, I'll give you my 30 second explanation of how induction forging works. This is as technical as I can get about it. Um, some of you might remember being in grade school and the teacher hands you a nine volt battery and a nail and a piece of copper wire and you wrap the wire around the nail real tight and then you pull the nail out and you connect the battery to the copper coil and then it'll pick up paper clips. You can stick the nail in there and then the nail will pick up paper clips. It makes a magnet, right? You remember that? That's what induction is doing, as I understand it. But instead of a battery connected to a wire that's wrapped around a nail, it's 220 volts with a copper tube with a lot of electrical wizardry happening in here to convert that to theoretically 15 kilowatts of power. And so when you stick material into the coil, it is making it magnetized, but as I understand it, it's shifting the polarity back and forth. And so like it's shifting the polarity of that magnet back and forth like a thousand times a minute or something. Like it's 
It's shifting polarity back real fast, and that shifting polarity is what causes the agitation in the steel molecules and creates heat. Sound all right? That's my explanation of how it works, other than press pedal, metal get hot. You know, that's usually what I tell people. Um, so, um, but, but if you know that about how it works, because it's a magnetic field that's oscillating back and forth like that, that magnetic field, if we could see it here, like if we could put on special glasses that let us see magnetic fields, what we would see is like, take two funnels that you use to pour oil in your truck and stick them together and, and make the ends meet inside this coil. And those funnels would be what that magnetic field looks like on the outside. And so, as you're using this machine, uh, it's not dangerous to stick your finger in there while it's running. I just got a little tingle because I completed the circuit. Um, if you complete the circuit with your finger, it'll tingle you. Um, <laughs> so don't do that. But, so I've got my finger inside this coil, right? So I'm gonna stick the metal in the other side while my finger's in there. Watch what happens to the metal. The metal's getting hot. My finger is not, okay? This is a fun experiment to do unless you have a metal splinter in your finger. <laughs> it, is, it is not fun anymore. And so I have, I have a little chunk of 4140 that is right there. <laughs> All right? I, I'm telling you, I just felt it. So I was on my treadle hammer center punching something and I didn't have my center punch properly dressed and I sheared the tip off, off of my center punch and it went straight into that hand about, about a half inch down into the meat of my thumb and, and it's still there. And so I didn't think anything about it for about a week and then I was sitting there and I happened to have my hand close to the coil while it was running and it lit that little pencil lead piece of 4140 up in my hand instantly. And I remembered what had happened. <laughs> so that is something I want to mention. I have a gold ring on this hand. All right, I'm a married guy. This is a bad idea. Gold will conduct heat in this machine just like copper will, just like, so as you're using something, if, if, I, if I was, you notice I'm doing all this with my right hand, with tongs. Um, I've made this mistake and I've had a good friend make that mistake. He got his hand too close and he got a 360 degree blister around his finger just about that quick. So if you're gonna use these machines, it's probably a good idea to take your rings off or keep your fingers with rings or embedded uh, metal away from that. Um, so anyway. I've been talking forever and I've made almost nothing. So, um, uh, one, one, like one thing that I think would be good for like demos is um, like to show the magnetic field. There's this one time I took some really thin stainless sheet and then you just put it up next to the coil and you'll get like a bright, just red circle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like a good way to yeah. Show where the but you can, you can do that with any sheet metal. Yeah. 
you could put it on there and it would ring around and, and show you where the heat, it would light up the heat in a circle and you could see where that is. Um, also, I've noticed that as I use these machines, if you hold it to the side like this, you can use this to get heat in the material. It does take longer, but you can also, if the material's a little bit bigger, there it goes, it's starting to light up. Do you see that? I don't know if y'all can see that, yeah. So it, I'm just on the side of the coil. I'm not inside that coil at all at this point, and it's lighting it up. Um, with thicker material doing that, you can sometimes feel it tugging at the material. You can feel the magnetic field kind of pulling it uh, back and forth a little bit. Um, all right, let's try to cut this one. Not too short. I usually don't hot cut this stuff. I usually, I usually do them all at this size or to this degree of completeness, meaning both arms up and down are long. I usually forge them all to that way and then I run to the bandsaw and just zip it off at the bandsaw. Um, what I do to finish these crosses most often is I just do a really quick, just a really quick, um, I don't know what this technique is called. So what I do is I usually just come on one side of the very top and then on the other side like that. I don't know what you call that. I'm spreading out just the top there. And it, if I do that on all four, it kind of gives it a Celtic cross look. It opens the crosses, uh, opens the ends up just a little bit and gives a two-sided facet to each side. And that's just kind of what I've come to do on all these. Um, and that can be done cold with the mild steel, or you can get heat in it and do it hot. Um, or you can start texturing it out. I've done stripe textures on these where I use a cross peen. I've, I've done a round ball texture on these. I've done stamping on these. And every time I do something like that and I like the way it looks, guess what that is? That's a new product on the website, right? So, um, I've got a little note, notebook in the shop where I keep kind of ideas, things I'm working on. And uh, if I do something like that, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I think, I think that would actually sell. I'll start a new page in the notebook and um, I'll make two or three of them and then I'll throw them up on the website and uh, 
There we go, there's a new, new product that fast. So the last thing I do is just zip off any sharp edges because I feel like these are gonna go in people's pockets or on their keychain. And I don't want anything sharp. And as I'm looking at it, it looks like one of the little arms is just a little bit crooked still. So I'm just gonna get a little heat. You see how little heat I put in that? Almost everything I make now is some form of mild steel. I do a lot of my work at like a dull red now on this stuff just because I can go to that induction forge in five seconds. I've got dull red, then I can go to a tire hammer or, you know, so I, I do a whole lot of work at those low heats. All right, there we go. So obviously, I was running my mouth the whole time. It took a long time to make a keychain. Um, but normally I can make these with induction uh, totally by hand, obviously I'm not using a power hammer or anything for this project. Um, I can make these with induction in just a couple minutes, usually, if I have the stock pre-cut. The longest part of making these is usually going to the bandsaw and making the cuts. And uh, what I usually do now is, you know, once a month or so, I'll, uh, I'll go to the, sit at the bandsaw and turn on a podcast and cut a bunch of pre-cut crosses. Um, I don't think I'm going to do this here today. Um, I could if I'd asked for it. Um, I, what I do usually do is I'll take it when I, get, when I have it finished. The very last thing I'll do is I'll get it to a red orange heat and I go to a wire wheel and I hit it with a wire wheel and strip all the scale off. So there's, I mean, there's absolutely zero scale. Um, and I just keep it at the wire wheel until it cools down and then I set it to the side and that's, that's kind of how I finish these. The last thing I will do after I knock the scale off and it's cool is I will um, grab a little rag with acetone on it, wipe it down, make sure it's clean. And the way I finish like almost all my stuff now is with matte clear coat. So um, I'll hit it with acetone, clean it off, and then uh, spray it with matte clear coat. I give it three coats. And I've carried one in my pocket that I clear coated for a while and it takes quite a long time for that to really wear off. Um, I have used blacksmith wax. I've used the Johnson Pace wax, uh, beeswax. I've tried the hot oil rag method. You know, I've tried color blackening it a little bit. All of those methods seem to hold up just about as long 
as the matte clear coat. And the big, uh, super big advantage for me with the matte clear coat is I can have a product finished and ready to go into an envelope to mail off much faster than if I have to heat it up and, and hit it with a rag and then I'm heating it up again and I have to wait. But if I go from the wire wheel, dunk it in water real quick, hit it with the acetone, that stuff dries too in just a couple of minutes. I mean, it's really, I can spray it and come back in like two minutes and I can handle it. Um, then I can knock my hole in it, put my little keychain lanyard on it, strap a leather strap, put my card and it goes in the mail. So um, that has become kind of a fast way to finish things that I picked up from uh, John Perilou in Louisiana, the guy that does all the tire hammer classes. He's a real talented blacksmith and he does that for a lot of his small items. So I thought if he does it, then hey, maybe, maybe I can do that too. All right, so that was uh, Friedrich's Cross. I only got one actual made. I'm gonna move to bottle openers real quick. Okay, those crosses I sell for 25 bucks shipped. The keychain cross. The, the, the slightly larger one is 30 bucks shipped. And that means that I'm eating, on average, I, I ship those in a flat rate, I mean in a, uh, in a bubble mailer envelope using a, there's a new shipping method now called Ground Advantage, which is like, it's, it's not quite as fast as priority mail, but it's, 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 two, it's three to five days versus two to three days. But it's a good bit cheaper. And so I can send, send off any one of those size crosses in one of those envelopes for about four bucks anywhere in the country. So I'm eating $4 of my profit by saying it's free shipping, you know, and, and um, I feel like I'm talking a lot. Is that okay? Like my, 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 one, of my, one of my main, I just want to say this up front. You're going to see a lot better blacksmithing and metalworking after I'm done today. The guys coming after me, stay, that, that's who you want to watch to watch some really incredible metal moving, all right? One, one of my big desires today was to really kind of show you how effective this machine is and talk to you about how much of a game changer it's been and talk to you about the methodology behind why I make the products I make. Um, that reminds me. I made a note the other day that I was supposed to talk about, about the products that I make. And that is I have three requirements now for a product to be listed on my website. One, I have to have inexpensive and plentiful material on hand, all right, which is mild steel and railroad spikes. I got those in spades, all right? So mild steel and railroad spikes are cheap, and I turn those things into money. So cheap and plentiful material, that's the first one. I have to be able to make it in under an hour, all right? And the most complicated thing that I make usually takes me about 45 minutes, I think now. And then the third requirement is I have to be able to make it with induction. If, if a product idea meets those three requirements, I got cheap material to make it, I can do it quick, and I can do it with induction, then boom, it goes on my website. And that has been a successful methodology for me. And I keep saying website a lot, so I wanna address that for a minute and talk to you for another minute about that. Um, 
I promise I'm going to make some more things. I don't know how much time I've got left, but I'm going to make some more things in a minute. But um, I want you to leave with something helpful today, an idea that maybe will help you, help you to make money. I told people yesterday that jokingly my demo was basically I want to teach you how I make money. And, and really, that sounds kind of, it might sound crass or cold uh, when you're talking about a craft that we put so much effort and heart into, and a lot of us do just because we enjoy it. You know, and I don't want to remove any of that. I don't want you to come away here thinking, Derek only does this to make money. While that is true, to some degree, I love this. And, and I did it for free for a long time. But I love tools. And I love buying tools. And it was hard to convince my wife that I needed to buy more tools using our personal checking account money. And so when I started a website and started a business and started using business money only for blacksmith things, that helped me in a lot of different ways, all right? And so um, all this business talk and all this website talk is because it's been important to me from a hobby perspective to help me equip my shop and get a lot of really cool tools. Nearly every tool in my shop now has been paid for by the work that comes out of the shop, um, which, is, which is awesome. This, I've, I've done a lot of different hobbies, a lot of different stuff. And, and blacksmithing and bladesmithing, they will, they will help you pay for your stuff, you know, if you're, if you're smart about it and you, and you pay attention to what things sell and you make things to sell in order to pay for the stuff you need. So, man, I, I hate, I hate buying these things. I mean, it, it, it drives me crazy when I order abrasives because it feels like I'm just grinding money, money away, you know? And for, uh, for, for those of you that are bladesmiths, Lord help you, you know, it's, it's bad. Uh, blade, bladesmith belts are expensive and it's a, you gotta have it. And so if you're a bladesmith or you're a blacksmith, these little small things, they, they'll help you pay for that, all right? Because you can make things like this. People say making hooks all the time and, and that, that's kind of a tired trope in the blacksmithing deal. But let me tell you, you go to a craft show with a basket of well-made hooks for five, 10 bucks a piece, I promise you, you will sell them all because Nana wants a hook on her front porch that looks cool, and that was in that basket, all right? <clears throat> I learned a real valuable lesson a couple years ago. I went to a, the grudge match in Gatlinburg. It was for Fortune Fire people, and it was pretty much all of us were bladesmiths, and we all had tables of work, you know, and, and most people had really nice blades on their table. But what's the average cost of a blade? Three, four, five hundred bucks. Yeah, easy. On the low end, three to five hundred bucks, right? And even then, you're probably crying because you know how much effort went into that, and really it's worth a lot more than that. There was one guy in Gatlinburg at that show, and he came and he set up, and I kind of knew him from the Forge and Fire thing. I don't remember what season he was on, but I recognized him and talked to him a little bit. The only thing on his table were railroad spike knives. 
he was covered up with them, uh, probably a hundred of them. All right, and most everybody had anywhere from, you know, five to 15 really nice knives on their table. That was Friday, Saturday. Midday Saturday, guess who was sold out? That guy. And he was selling $75 railroad spike knives with sheaths that he didn't even make. He bought the sheaths from somebody else. He banged out a railroad spike knife, shoved it in a somebody else made sheath. And, and man, he sold everything he had. And I was like, who was the smartest guy here, you know? Because he, he made things that were, that were accessible to the general public. And I am not discounting making fine blades. I mean, there are, there are people out there that want fine blades. And there are makers here today who make utterly exquisite pieces that people buy. But those makers too, if you talk to them, they're talking about the need to make things that they can sell on a regular basis. So regardless of whether I make one more thing today for you, I want you to leave with that knowledge that making small things that you might think are silly, you know, they'll help you pay for those blasted sanding belts and they'll help you pay for a coal iron press or an induction forge. They absolutely will. And so what's happened to me is I shifted to doing that just to kind of see if it would work. And now I'm stuck in it, kind of. You know, I mean, I've made 2,500 railroad spike stake turners in the last two years. At between 40 and $57 a piece. I got two kids in college, they both have a car, they're both on my insurance. So what's working for me right now is, man, I'm all into railroad spikes. They make me happy. And so find what works for you. It might be railroad spike stuff, it might be hooks, it might be little crosses, it'll be something, but, but I just wanna drill in how important it is to make small stuff for profit and, and kind of make it on the regular because you can do it quick and have it. And the other thing I wanna say, and this is what started this whole conversation, was I keep saying the word website and I know for a fact that not everybody has a website in here, right? Who has a website in here? All right, not many, all right? So I guess I could probably poll the crowd, and I'm an IT guy, I've been working in computers and IT for a long time. And a lot of people, when they see that I've got a website, the first thing they say to me is, yeah, but you're an IT guy, you get it. I promise you now, how many of you are blacksmiths in here? Okay. How many of you are bladesmiths? All right, y'all both like nasal hammers, right? If somebody gave you a nasal hammer, but it needed a lot of work, what would you do to get that thing running? You'd do, you'd do anything to get that running. You'd figure it out, you'd read a 100-page manual, you'd translate German, you'd do whatever you had to do to get that hammer running, right? Right. Making a website is way easier than getting a Nasal 3B running. Like nowadays, it is way easier. If you can use Facebook or TikTok or whatever, if you can use any of those and you can figure out how to log in, how to send yourself a text message for an authentication challenge, 
how to put in your email address. If you can figure those things out, I promise you, I promise you, you can figure out how to create a website. It's super easy. I use Squarespace, there's Wix, there's WordPress, there's a bunch of different places, but, but they're so easy now. And so how many bladesmiths are in here again? How many of y'all were hit by Instageddon last week? One, two, at least a few. Instageddon, for those of you don't, that don't know, was basically a mass banning of knife-related content on the platform. We could argue for the rest of the day for why that happened and the, if there's political reasons behind it. That doesn't matter. The fact is it happened, right? So if you were on Facebook or you were on Instagram and those were how you're selling your product, because most of us have sold some product on social media at some point, right? If that social media goes away, then what are you gonna do? Right, so that's, what I'm, that's the last thing, I'm, I'm done. All right, get a website. Get a website, look, I, I'm on Instagram. I, I readily reply to people that contact me and talk to me. If you want help setting up a website, I kid you not, shoot me a message. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be the next day, but I swear to you, I'll help you get set up, all right? I'll, you can, I'll give you my phone number, We'll sit down in 20 minutes, you can get a website going. I'll help you, because I think it's that important if you want to pay for sanding belts. So, all right, let, let me make something else before I run out of time. Um, earlier I talked about the, um, the three minute bottle opener. Um, I'm not gonna ask you to time me because <laughs> I'm probably gonna start talking, but I wanna show you what it looks like to make one of these bottle opener blanks. Um, real quick, and so I use these flat bar tongs. Watch this, this is pretty cool, how fast you can make a bottle. You know what? I need to change coils real quick. So I'm gonna show you how I change coils. So to change coils on the induction machine, turn the machine off first, all right? Because there is water, this is a water cooler, and it is sending water through this machine and through these coils, and you can imagine what'll happen if you leave the water chiller running and you go to change the coils, you'll get a, you'll get a shower real quick. How much has the electric bill gone up? That is an awesome question. I was waiting for somebody to ask it, which unfortunately means I'm gonna talk some more. So, I have had induction for three years, and I did the math, all right? So I was curious about what, what it was doing to my electric bill, because, you know, when you first get this machine, you step on the pedal, and you see how amazingly fast it heats metal, and you're going, oh, gosh, there goes my electric bill. Well, I did the math, all right? So I used induction for an entire year, Making the small things I've been talking about, you know, the things that I sell on my website, I used it for a year. And, uh, and then I went to my Entergy uh, website. We use a, a company called Entergy in Mississippi. I went to their website and uh, downloaded the bill. So what I'm doing now is I'm just looking to see if it's leaking. Sometimes when you change coils, if you don't get the flares seated just right, it'll start dripping but it looks, looks pretty good. 
All right. Um, one year with induction, my electric bill compared to the previous year. I downloaded 12 months and 12 months previous and after induction. The year when I had induction, my on average every month, my electric bill was about $15 more a month. That's it. 15 bucks on average per month. Now, your kilowatt hour rate, I don't know what it's like up here. It might be vastly different than in Mississippi. I don't know, probably not crazy different, but anyway, take that into account, all right? Yes? How much money did you save on propane? That's what I was about to say. So then I looked at the previous year of all the bills, and I was like, okay, I'm at like 15 bucks a month. That's not bad, you know? But how much propane did I not buy the second year, okay? So when I was using propane, I was filling one of these 100-pound tanks up about every month and a half or every other month. So over a year, I might fill it up seven times. You know, of course I was making other things too. I was making hammers and axes and bigger kind of stuff, you know, and so I used a lot more propane then too. But the year I had induction, I filled it once. All right, so yeah. So how quick will that machine pay for itself? That, that does not even include how, how my time. My time is more valuable than that. Yes, I'm sorry, you have a question? Uh, what, your electric bill is $15 more, but how much, how much does your whole electric bill a month? So on my house, yeah. so on average, uh, gosh, Are all right. Are you running your house and your shop? Yeah, so here's the deal. Uh, I have, my business, is a, it's a part-time business. It's an LLC, and I have a shop building behind the house. And I don't really, I don't itemize my taxes at the end of the year. I don't look and say, okay, how much electricity did the blacksmith business use versus how much did uh, the family use? I could do that. I could get real granular, but I kind of don't. I kind of fudge in favor of the IRS in case I ever get audited. That's probably not a super wise business move, but that's generally what I do, you know. I don't take every stinking deduction I possibly could, you know. And that's one thing I could do. I could itemize it out, you know. And so, uh, to answer your question, in Mississippi, I have, uh, I have a 3,000 square foot house, big family that was grown and gone now, but we have, we have three air conditioning units on that house. And in Mississippi, we run the air conditioning all the way up through October. I mean, we ran it just a couple days ago, to be honest with you. So my, my electricity bill, goes above $350, $400 a month sometimes. So depending on if it's summer or winter. Winter time, our, our bill drops because we're not running the air conditioners quite as much. Um, and so, but even with all that considered with summertime air conditioning use, on average, what I could see in the electric bill consumption was not significant. It wasn't a crazy amount, all right? And the reason, the reason that I don't think it's crazy is right now this machine is running, right? It's capable of heating material, but it's not actively heating material. Right now, the only thing that's running is the cooler on the bottom, all right? Which is just, that's a 110 volt fan that you're hearing, all right? 
So that's not, that's not a lot of amp draw. Your kilowatt, your, your meter's not spinning like crazy, all right? Now, when I press this, this pedal, now that's amp draw. Now the meter's running, it's going, all right? The thing is though, let's get this bottle opener hot. You see the digital readout on the machine? Whoop, let's go to the side. So what does that digital readout on the machine right here mean? That's how many seconds, all right? So let's just watch. And again, I'm not using the most optimal coil for the work right now, but right now this is 1018 mild steel, really, really moves super easy. I don't need just a tremendous amount of heat, you know? Um, so that's 30 seconds that that pedal was running, right? I, I'm not sitting there running that pedal like crazy. If that pedal was running nonstop, yeah, I could see it really tearing your electric bill up, right? So the first step in the bottle opener blank is to make it look like it's not a bottle opener blank. So you could actually take this blank and forge a little tab into it and call it done. Right? But I want it to look and I want it to be forged somewhat. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. Um, and this horn is actually a little bit too big for this. No, I'm good. I mean, in all reality, I'm probably gonna talk again and probably won't get it completely done. Um, I'm just turning around so I can get the bottom of that loop or that hole forged. So anyway, to answer your question, by comparing my electric bills, um, I, I think I'm accurate in saying that it's, in my, in my experience, in my shop, it is the cheapest form of heat that I have found. I mean, I, I've not found, uh, coal is pretty cheap, or at least it used to be, it's not really anymore. Um, You know, I talked to uh, hammer maker Brent Bailey not long ago out in California. Guy uses a lot of coal. And he was asking me if I knew of an induction machine that was big enough to do the material he forges hammers, you know, two and three inch round. And I was like, yeah, they make those machines, but they require 480 volt, three phase power, you know, and I think it might not be a problem for him, but, um, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from more people, I'm hearing from more and more people that they're having, like we in Mississippi with the Mississippi Forge Council, we've had to kind of shop around to find coal at a reasonable price or Coke, Forge Coke. We, we like to use Coke. Um, so 
I don't know about that here in Indiana, but have y'all found that to be a problem? It's not. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that from other people in the country that, that it's getting more and more difficult to find the coal. I'm just tapering this down to make what I call a uh, the tapered bottle opener or a keyhole bottle opener. Um, yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing from more and more people that the forge coat that they used to buy is either not available anymore. L brand, y'all ever heard of L brand Coke? I don't think we can get that anymore. They they're not selling to us. I think they're still selling, but they're selling to like these huge electric companies and stuff, you know? Normally, this particular step in my shop, I have three tire hammers. I have one tire hammer that has um, three quarter inch round bar fullers and then the next hammer has inch and a quarter round bar fullers. And then the third one has uh, combo dies with like a three inch round fuller on one side and a flat on the other. <clears throat> and when I make these bottle openers, usually I go to the small fuller and go boom, boom. I go to the slightly larger fuller, I go doom, doom. And then I go to the combo dies with a flatter and, and I'm done. And so I'll, mark, I'll walk down the aisle of tire hammers and I'll get this work done um, just in a, a minute, you know, usually all in the first heat. But I'll, when I use induction making my stuff, I quite often go back and forth and I just, I grab a little heat where I need it. Um, I get asked quite a bit about induction with when people are, especially bladesmiths, y'all are the worst. <laughs> y'all are the worst. What's the first question you think a bladesmith asks me when I show them induction. Can I do, yes. Can I do Damascus in that? No, you cannot. So just get that out of your head and stop dreaming about making Damascus in induction. Um, I, I, get, I get why you would want to, and I, I'm kind of making a joke there. But, um, so the reason is induction, so people ask me, can I do that? And I say no, and the reason is, I, I would say, could you make, can you make a Damascus billet with your acetylene torch? Could you? Maybe. Would it be fun? No? Is it gonna be reliably stuck together? Probably not. You know, the king of that is gonna be a really powerful gas forge, right? I mean, these machines are miracle working machines if you use them for their intended purpose, which is fast, localized, intense heat, all right? So what I like to tell people is when they think about how could they use this in their shop, I like to say, how do you use an acetylene torch in your shop? You know, how could you use how could you use fast, localized, uh, small areas of heat? Um, and so for a lot of people, what that means 
is if you shifted to using induction to making a particular product, you might, you might, your forging steps, your process in propane might be completely different than your process would be using induction because in induction, you're just getting that little area that you wanna move hot. Like right now, all I'm doing is just tapering this little area down. I'm not worried about this area on the end. I'm not worried about the, this, the round hole part. But if I was in propane, what would be hot? All of it. What's gonna move? All of it, right? That's a big advantage with induction is that you can say, okay, I wanna focus on this little area, all right? So I don't know if I'll have time to do it, but if I make a state turner, you'll see. I work this section, and then I work this section, and then I work this section, and then I go back and I work this section because I'm using little small areas of heat. Um, so that is definitely something, something to think about. And you know, even though it's a common question when people say, oh, I wanna get one of those induction forges, I can make Damascus really fast, you know, um, you, it, it's just not the right tool for the job. You know, you still wanna have, you still wanna have the right tool for the job in your shop. And for that work, that's propane, in my opinion. And you know, if you're a traditional, more traditional blacksmith, then, um, and you prefer working in coal, man, I get it. I, I love working in coal, it's fun. Um, but do you want to light your coal forge for everything you need to forge? That's kind of my litmus test for blacksmiths who ask about it. They're like, oh, I really like my coal forge. You know, I like the feeling I get. I like the smell I get. I'm like, dude, I get it. That's great. Do you want to do that for every single thing you do? And some of them are absolutely, yes, I do, you know? And then some of them are like, no, you know what? Every once in a while, I gotta bend a piece of flat bar. It'd be sure nice if I could just walk over there and bend a piece of flat bar real quick. So like I told you, this is not the three minute bottle opener because I don't know how long I've been talking now, but it's a lot longer than three minutes. How long do I have? 30 minutes left? All right. I might be able to get a steak turner done. Do y'all want to see a steak turner made? I don't, okay. I always kind of think they're kind of boring products <laughs> because everybody's seen stuff done with railroad spikes so many times. I'm like. That's only you made 2,500 of them. Yeah. All right. All right, I'll quit monkeying around with this bottle opener and finish it real quick. Was your blacksmith shop heated before? Heated? Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't heat shops in Mississippi. That's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. So. Um, was it last Tuesday in Mississippi? I woke up and it's 27 degrees outside. And in Mississippi, that's we freak out. That's that's freak out cold weather. It's oh man, this is really cold. But I, I went to my shop and I looked. Um, I looked. I flipped it on and looked at the temperature, and the water was still at like 48 degrees in my shop. My shop is not. It's not 100% insulated. It's a 30 by 30 building with a roll up garage door on it. So that's got that foam board insulation and then there's some insulation, but the, 
the, I'm just open rafters in the ceiling. So it gets pretty cold in there. But even when it gets down in the 20s, in my shop, the water in those machines, I've never seen it go into the 30s, actually. Now, I think if it was in the 20s for multiple days on end, then it would creep down over time, and I would definitely have to do that. And so let me talk about that. Induction machines require water to be cooled, and they require distilled water. You don't want to put regular water in there, and they don't want to put tap water in there. There's too many things in the tap water that will react with the current, and they will form calcification areas inside that machine. If, uh, if I took a screwdriver and took all these screws off and popped this shell off of this machine, it would look to you just like the inside of a desktop computer would look. There's like cards stuck in places, there's big transformers, there's a lot of circuitry and circuit boards in that machine. But there's also clear tubes that are running through different places inside the machine. And those clear tubes inside the machine have little copper connectors where they all connect together. And so we had a cold snap in Mississippi last year. And it was a week or more we were below freezing, which is unusual, but it did happen. And so I was like, okay, I gotta do something with the induction machine. So I rather unwisely grabbed the automotive antifreeze and I was like, I'll just mix a little in there. So I just poured a little antifreeze in the, in the water reservoir. And my thought was, I knew what would happen. I knew that that wasn't good because regular antifreeze also has those things that will cause calcification to happen. But I just thought, I'll do it for a little while and get through this cold snap. I'll then dump my water and put new distilled water in. Well, guess who forgot? So I forgot that I'd put the antifreeze in there. Three months goes by, everything's working fine. I'm in the shop one day, I'm working, and in the middle of a session, I'd been working for about an hour, in the middle of a session, I pressed the pedal and the alarm for the water fail went off. The machine did that right in the middle of work. I was like, oh crap, what's going on? So the first thing I checked was, am I getting water in? And yes, I was getting water in, but I wasn't getting enough pressure. It was like just dribbling out. And so uh, the way you can check that is you can take these off and then turn your water pump on and water will shoot out. And it should shoot out with a pretty good bit of force. It was just kind of dribbling out, all right? And so that was an indication that I had a water flow problem. Anyway, long story short, I pulled the case and in every clear tube inside that machine where it met a copper uh, or a brass fitting, there was a bright, teal colored calcification wad. And it had just built up like a clogged artery. And so I had to take that machine, unscrew every one of those hoses and get a little reamer and clean out all those things and it fixed it. So up here where it gets cold, the suggestion is watch the temperature, make sure. And if it's gonna get below freezing, my suggestion, is to use a dedicated TIG coolant. So TIG coolant is a fancy antifreeze that's used in machines that conduct electricity. I've also heard you can use RV. Propylene glycol. Okay, yeah, propylene glycol, which is RV antifreeze as well. And so there are cheaper ways to get it. If you go to Amazon and buy 
TIG torch coolant dedicated antifreeze, it's, it's expensive. You know, it'd be like 150 bucks to fill up the machine with the six gallons that it needs. So in Mississippi, we rarely, rarely ever have to worry about heating our shops. But um, I have learned not to use real antifreeze. Um, so that's a long way around about of answering that question. All right, let me see if I can make a steak turner real quick. Um, and I'm gonna do this all with induction because that's how I make my steak turners now. Um, just real quick, I wanted to bring these to show you. These are dedicated railroad spike tongs. Aren't these cool? This one looks like a bottle opener. You grab the railroad spike like that. These are really neat, all right? And then you got these that look like three fingers holding the railroad spike. You know, those like those. Those are pretty cool. I hate those tongs, both of them. I don't <laughs> use them at all, all right? I use bolt tongs. I use half inch bolt tongs. Really, I should be using 5 eighths bolt tongs, but I'll show you why I use half in a minute. So these are the tongs I use all the time. You see how shiny the reins are? It's because that's what I use. And so I start like this to make a railroad spike stake turner. I grab the head sideways and I go into the coil like this. Can we turn this hammer on? I'm gonna use a power hammer because that's how I do it at the house. Usually it takes me about 40 to 50 seconds to heat up this section that I'm working on now. So what I'm working on is the handle. What's gonna be the handle of the railroad spike stake turner? This also applies to a railroad spike knife in my shop, all right? Everything I make from a railroad spike where the handle is gonna be near the head, I do this step first. And what I'm doing is I'm gonna heat up the area that's gonna be the handle and I'm gonna reduce the diameter just a little bit. So railroad spikes are typically 5 eighths square. I'm gonna take that down for about three to four inches. I'm gonna take that down to something a little less than that. And by making that handle a little bit less fat, it's gonna push material out farther, which is gonna allow me to get a longer railroad spike stake turner in the end. And so that's, and then I grab it like that. You see me? And I'm just gonna reduce this area. Do y'all wanna see how much time do I have? 20 minutes?
the, the fastest and most popular, fastest selling and most popular railroad spikes take turner I make is on that storyboard on that table right there. It's the Rubik twist. It's real simple to do, but it looks really cool. It's probably the most uncomfortable handle, in my opinion, but people buy it, so I sell it, you know. Um, Um, get out of there. By reducing that handle area just a little bit, I lost some heat there, but it's going to push out. Sometimes the head will wander to the left or the right. So now that I've reduced that, I start grabbing it like this, all right? And so by, by reducing that handle material, even just a little bit, I, sometimes I reduce it more than that, but I'm not gonna do a Rubik style here because I don't have enough time. I'm gonna do what I call a plain handle, which is just a chamfered handle. But by reducing that area just a little bit, I have pushed this whole bit out. I don't know, maybe quarter inch, maybe half inch. You'd be surprised how much pushing that out results in the end. You know, you can get a couple inches longer in the end by reducing that just a little bit. So that's the first step is to reduce that. The next step is I'm gonna use a spring fuller. I'm gonna come in here and I'm gonna make a little fullered area right above the handle. And what that's gonna wind up being in the end, if you look at that storyboard, it's an area where when you grab the railroad spike stake turner, your thumb and forefinger just naturally go there, you know? So again, I could be using a smaller coil, but one of the reasons I keep this size coil in my forge is um, if I have to heat the head of the railroad spike, I can get the head of the railroad spike in this. And you can see it's pretty effective heating this material up. That just might take 10 seconds longer than it would with a smaller coil. So, you know, the speed is kind of a relative thing.
So I was just going around chamfering the, uh, the corners, knocking the corners down. So that's the handle and the little pinched in fuller spot, you know, I just do that. Um, sometimes what I'll do is another fuller right above that to start what's gonna be the long drawn out neck of the steak turner. Steak turners are either right or left-handed. So if you're gonna make these off from in right or left-handed, it does make a difference. If you got, if somebody that is left-handed buys one and you hand them a right-hander, it's, it's weird for them. So, uh, So I did the, the bottom fuller, so to speak, right where your thumb and forefinger are gonna rest. And then this fuller here is just the start of the tapering that I'm about to do for the rest of this. It just gives me a good, kind of a clean transition. So now I'm gonna try to heat that whole section up See how I'm moving the spike in and out of the coil? If I keep it in one spot, there's a band of heat that's gonna develop in that spot, you know? But by moving it back and forth, I'm, I'm getting more heat out of it. I've made 36 inch fire pokers in induction. Um, but when I make a fire poker out of half inch or something, you know, I'm never heating the whole thing. I'm, I just heat the end that I'm working to make the poker in. I heat the part that I'm using to do a forge weld. And uh, that's, that's another point. I think somebody asked earlier about forge welding. You can absolutely forge weld in these. Absolutely. They will, they will get stuff hot to forge weld really quick. Just not really Damascus. I mean, you can maybe do low layer, small stuff. I make them a certain length. I get asked quite a bit, can you make me an extra long steak turner? And every once in a while I will. I could make them longer than I do, but I usually stop at about 14 inches or so. And the reason is, 
That is the perfect size that will fit diagonally in a regional rate A mailbox, all right? So I found out that that was the cheapest way to ship them was in a rate, rate A box. So I just put one in diagonally and I was like, there you go, that's, that's how long they are. Especially if you're doing it at the cool temperatures I tend to work at. 
So the way to fix this is the second you see that sliding off start to happen, the very second you see it, turn your work up on the diamond, on the long side, and knock those corners down. So then you'll have a bar that has a tempered corner on two sides like that. So you'll knock that high side tamper down. Then run your bar back through and, and squish it back down and start over again. Sometimes you might have to do that two or three times. And on a real, real extreme case, you may have to go to round and then go back to square. But that sliding off into rhombus land, what I call it, will happen quite a bit with the state turner. Um, on power. So, making sure your dies are really nice and flat is a big part of that. You can do the paper test, turn your hammer on, get it going, take a piece of notebook paper, stick the notebook paper in there, slam your dies down and look at the pattern it leaves. If it'll be grease, dirt, and all that that smacks and leaves that pattern. If that pattern is real dark on one side and light on the other, then your dies are high on that side. Or either the top die is low on that side, you know. But either way, you've got to fix that. And so you can take a grinder and adjust, you can adjust your dies until they're hitting flat and use the paper to sell. take it close to about a quarter inch. That's about what I want it to be, but tapered. <clears throat> so at the very end here, I'm just, just allowing you
this area here where I started the taper. It's kind of ugly. That's been uh, it's been hitting the edge of my hammer dies a little bit there, so I'm going to clean that up on the horn with a ball team. And then we'll work to the very end of it. So I'm chasing, now I'm chasing this, this chamfer that goes all the way down the bar. I'm running it back up the edges of this curved little fuller area. Spike is kind of leaning off a little bit. So I'm going to stick 
just the edge of the spike into the side of the coil. I don't need to get to just a tremendous amount of heat. I just need to move it a little bit. So it's leaning this way, so I'm going to hook the railroad spike on that side and then hammer on the top just a little bit. And that should move it over. I'm, I'm hooking on the edge of that handle. I'm pulling while I'm while I'm pushing that part up. So the very last thing to do on these is to work the very tip. So because this started as a fairly sharp point. When you stretch it out, the end of this thing will be fish mouthed a little bit, and so I just usually zip that off at a belt grinder like that and make it round before I start forging it. Otherwise, you're going to have all kinds of weird, weird problems. You're going to wind up with a crack in the very end of it. This is the bit that's touching food, right? 
So those of you that are chef knife makers, you're familiar with the term food release, right? You want a knife that has good food release. Well, I found that if I if I forge these things to a point, I had a little forge texture in there, and sometimes when you hook meat, it didn't want to let go as well. And so by grinding it and getting it nice and shiny, it goes in the meat and comes right out. It releases the food. So, so now I'm going to take that piece of wood again, go over the horn, just knock the tip down. If I run out of heat, I'll just go get a little bit more real quick. It helps if you press the pedal. Back. And the reason I'm using a piece of wood is again I don't want to put marks in it. I don't want to mess it up. Railroad spike steel is pretty forgiving stuff. I mean, the only time I've ever had it crack or break on me is like when I get a real bad wrong or I push it too far away from cold. These are, uh, I ordered the, I'm going to start an argument now. I ordered the HC spike, the high carbon spike, because in all reality, they do have a little more carbon in them. And when I quench the tip of this, it's harder than the low carbon spike. And these HC spikes, if you do forge them a little too cold, you know, I think they're more part of the track than miles. So. Alright, so I made my tip. I'm just pouring a little bit larger, but all I'm doing now is refining that round shape a little bit before I make the shape Alright, here's the last thing. Here's a secret. How do you make this a right or a left? All right, so I'm a right-hander, so I want to grab the steak turner and I want to put it over the meat and turn my wrist and go into the meat, flip it, and then release the meat. All right, that's right hand. Right hand is like that. A left-hander is like that. So if I'm going to make this a right-hand steak turner, I want the turner, I want the hook going that way to my left. I want the hook pointing to my left. If it's going to be for a lefty. If I hold it like this, I want the hook pointed to my right, and opposite. But here's how, here's how I do it, here's how I remember. To make a right-hander, I'll lay it on the far edge of the anvil to where the curve comes back and meets the edge. So this is going to be a right. I'm going to turn it toward the right. See how I did that? I lay it with the hook going towards the anvil, touching the side. This is a right-hander. Go to the right, alright? That's the right-handed shake turn. And then I'm just gonna bend this down. Clean it up. And then there's one last thing I like to do. If you bend it down like that, the hook kind of stays far out to the right. So you can see the hook is a little bit further out that way. And so to fix that, I go to a vise. I stick it in the vise. I grab a pair of tongs. 
and I just bend that just like that. What I want is I want the middle of that neck to be right in the middle of that curve. And then I'll pull this into the vise. It kind of gives me a little transition on the back side. And that is just about it. This one is a little shorter than I usually do, but you get the point. This would still work. Close to it. I don't know. 